Star Wars 7x7 episode 890. Today it's the second half of my interview with Brian J. Jones, the author of the new and definitive biography of George Lucas. It's George Lucas, A Life. Punch it, Chewie. Feel a disturbance in the force? It's Star Wars 7x7, your daily seven-minute podcast with your host, Alan Voivod. Destiny Unleashed. Hey, Rebel Rouser. Welcome to Star Wars 7x7. I'm your host, Alan Voivod, and we're going to pick right up from where we left off in yesterday's episode and talk about what it's like to write an unauthorized biography, that maverick feeling that you could possibly get from doing something for which you don't exactly have full and official permission. Brian and I also talk about the moments in Lucas's life that really changed his career, that really set the direction for the course of his life. And we also talk about the responsibility of being Lucas's biographer and what that means for doing additional biographical stuff once Lucas has lived the rest of his life and knowing that you're going to be the biographer basically of choice for future generations looking to understand Lucas's impact on society. So without further ado, let's jump in. Oh wait, let me give you one other bit of further ado. I am giving away a copy of George Lucas A Life. The publishers were kind enough to send me two copies and so I'm giving one of them away. I shared the details for how that's happening on yesterday's show, and I'm going to do the same thing again today at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that. But here now, and definitely without further ado, is the rest of my conversation with Brian J. Jones, author of George Lucas, A Life. So does it make it any different when it's quote-unquote unauthorized? I mean, do you feel that sort of you know almost maverick sensation, comparatively speaking? Yeah, you know, it, it really does because you never, you don't feel you've got anybody looking over your shoulder who's going, no, 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 no. That's that's, you know, that I wouldn't say it quite that way, or let's spin this a different way, or well, I know you think that's what is going on, but that's not really what ha-, you know. So it, it does, it's a little, it's a little liberating in that sense, in that you, um, you know, you you, you sort of you sort of are you, you know you sort of self editing to go along. Um, I, I do want to make sure people understand, like the Henson book, even though I had their their cooperation, it wasn't authorized per se. They anything I said in that book, if they didn't like, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't stop me from saying anything. Okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was it was you know it was very it was very liberating to sort of be you know going going rogue out there. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm rogue too, maybe um, out yeah. there and, and you know and doing the work that way. So. What would you I say? I would love to have had their archives. Don't get me wrong. I would love to be, you know, sitting right next to J.W. Rinsler and, uh, you know, pouring through those archives. So I would have loved to have had that. But uh, barring that, um, you know, not having him on board, I, I just think it uh, it still made it a, for a really much stronger book. Yeah, and um, there were some interviews that you were able to do, but I gather that um, because Lucas declined participation, that that creates kind of a, a ripple effect around people that would be comparatively in his inner circle that they wouldn't necessarily participate either? You are absolutely correct. I won't name particular names, but I got tantalizingly close to several people before all of a sudden they said, oh, is he, uh, is he on board? No. And the, the, like radio silence. Wow. Um, so I had that happen several times. Several people have non-disclosure agreements um, and, you know, said, oh, I'd love to talk to you, but I have an NDA. So, um, you know, so yeah, you run into, you run into several, uh, you know, 
you know, barriers like that. But you have to you have to treat yourself like a, a literary Indiana Jones. You know, you just keep going and just keep digging and you know trying to find this, trying to find the nuggets in the earth as you dig them up. So, what would you say were some of the most surprising things that you dug up in all of your research? Well. For the, actually, the the ones that I felt really good about, even though they're incredibly minor, is um, you know I pulled anytime Lucasfilm went up for uh, zoning approval for changes out at Skywalker Ranch, I pulled all the public records on that, ah. and um, that was where I found the bit about how he had been planning to build a little uh, love retreat for he and Linda Ronstadt at oh. one point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, it was in the public record, and like the people, the zoning people were like, "Please, we're not gonna no." You know, the neighbors objected to it, and so on. So, like, you find little fun things like that in in like weird public records. Uh, you know, how she was carrying around a, an Empire Strikes Back lunchbox with her. You know, I love finding little bits like that. You know, I found stuff in Linda Ronstadt, Linda Ronstadt fan club documents about you know the two of them a little bit, and that was where I found the quote where she said that it was ring on the finger and everything, which was news to me. I'd never actually heard they got that close. Mm-hmm. Uh, to being married, so you know, so there's there's moments like that that I really love, and those are the moments you, as a you know, as a writer and a biographer and historian, you love finding even little things like that that really it's just it's just another one of those little details that make the story that much more fun and make that story come that much more alive. That's fantastic. I mean, that's almost like <laughs> the comparative makes me think of Chinatown and you know yeah it's just about water rights and how boring but ultimately what an incredible story is behind this <laughs> something that seems so absolutely utterly uncompelling on its face yeah that you could find something weird like that in there I mean you know I was pulling all of them because he was just furious that you know he couldn't get ILM out to the ranch everybody just kept it you know saying he was trying to establish an industrial beachfront a term that I loved mm-hmm. but uh, you know he just could never get ILM out there so I was pulling those records all the time trying to watch this ongoing debate and then there's that little nugget in there about you know trying to build the little love shack for he and Linda Ronstadt on the ranch so um, what do you think about his um you know his relationship life. Um, of course, he was first married to uh, to Marcia, and mm-hmm. Marcia seems like she was, you know, as much a collaborator on the Star Wars movies as anybody else could have been, and helped shape what you know what the vision turned out to be. Yeah. Um, you know how how has his how would you say his professional life has been affected by his romantic life? You know, somebody, first of all, Marsha, everybody to a person says, to a man and woman, call her his secret weapon. You know, she had, she was a great editor. She had this really intuitive story sense. Um, but, you know, for Lucas, you know, Lucas, I think, really loved the idea of being in love and he's a romantic. But at that period in his life, especially, I mean, I, I think I, I said it quite this way. I mean, for him, movies were the other woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that made it really tough for him to have personal relationships. Um, and how did his personal relationships affect his creative life? You know, when he was with Marsha, they were sort of both the same thing. You know, she's editing Star Wars for him. She's helping him edit you know, American Graffiti. You know, she's intimately involved with uh, with both of those big projects. So they're really, I mean, there's a whole, you know, there, there's there's no wall between. His, per- his personal and his private life, or his private and his professional lives at that point, uh, which again's got to make it, that makes it tough on a marriage. It makes it tough on her, especially because Marsha's getting ready. You know, Marsha wants to go out and have a family and, and have some downtime, and Lucas keeps saying, "Yes, yes, 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 yes." Let me just take, let me just get this next one out of the way. Um, and you know, finally, really collapsed his marriage because of that. By the time he got to Jedi, 
Um, now I think, but now then what happened at that point was, you know, he really, the, the quote he actually had, I think at Rolling Stone at the time was, I've got to get my life back. And that was when he stops directing. And I mean, he'd stopped directing with Empire and Jedi, of course, too. But I mean, that's when he sort of starts working behind the scenes, building the ranch, becoming a producer, helping his friends, you know, investing in movies he believes in, investing in movies I think that he wishes he would be making, you know, things like Paul Quatsi and, you know, Mishima, things like that. Um, you know, helping people, helping people pursue their art you know and studios be dance and so there's that period of about 10 years where he's really you know sort of just working behind the scenes on that so i think the fact that he didn't have much of a love life that also kind of affected his um professional life because he's working behind the scenes to work on raising a family at that point um it, you know, and, it, and he's dating Linda Ronstadt, and that's his, that's his kind of uh, his, you know, selling his wild oats in a way, I guess, if you will. You know, shaves off the beard, and there's, you know, I love, I love the picture. I made sure I ran in the book a picture of him without his beard because he looks so strange to us who are also used to him without that beard. Yeah, that's insane. Uh, yeah, and, you know, and he, was taking, he was taking dancing lessons and learning how to play guitar and things like that. Um, but I really think the relationship he's got with Melody Hobson is just, I mean, I think that is the, the, the you know, his, his, soulmate i mean they're just they're a great couple together he is clearly nuts about her she is sharp as attack and very savvy i mean i think they're a terrific couple um i think partly she's the one who um you know loosened him up i mean i think that's the reason he's you know making fun of himself on adult swim and you know things like that so i, I really think that she's you know she's she's helped lighten him up a little bit and so he doesn't take himself quite so seriously anymore he's got the he's got the scowl off his face <laughs> All right. Um, you've been tremendously generous with your time, and I really appreciate it. I only have one or two other questions for you, sure. if I may. Yeah, no, no. Um, as far as uh, other influences on his life, one of the themes that um, crops up from time to time in your book is you talk about um, the importance of of people who are a few years older than him that sort of step in and become older brother-like right. figures in his life. Like you mentioned Alan Grant and the racing scene and Haskell Wexler when he goes to USC film school and Haskell's already a cinematographer and then, of course, Francis Ford Coppola as well. Would you mind talking a little bit about that um, and how you know how that affected his life and also you know even as as it goes on does it flip around like does lucas end up taking that role in other people's lives yeah uh, yeah no I, th I think it's a really interesting aspect of his personality and it, you can trace it all the way back to when he was very young and his sister had been engaged to a young man who was killed in korea and lucas was devastated by this and it had been very close to his sister's fiance and, uh, you know, Lucas, I think, always was sort of looking for that older brother figure because, uh, you know, it wasn't that Lucas didn't get along with or didn't love his father. But, you know, he and his father, were, you know, cut, sort of cut from very different cloths and very, you know, very not necessarily estranged, but didn't always get along. And so I think he was looking for somebody to fill that gap in there a lot of his life and really would attach himself to these these warmer, you know, fraternal figures, starting, again, Alan Grant in the race pits, Haskell Wexler, you know, very early on, and then comes to bail him out when he's doing American Graffiti, uh, somebody like Coppola. And Coppola, of course, is a huge figure in Lucas's life because, you know, Lucas attaches himself to Coppola because the two of them, again, although they're, they're, they are cut from the same cloth and they're both these creative, you know, hugely independent, fiercely independent mavericks, they're also this, these yin and yang personalities where, you know, Coppola is larger than life and loud and bombastic and Lucas can barely be heard half the time. And, and uh, Lucas always talks about how Coppola is the one who wants to jump off the cliff and Lucas is tapping him on the shoulder saying, shouldn't we think about this first, Francis? 
So, um, you know, there, there are these two dynamically opposed personalities who complement each other almost perfectly. And Coppola's come out of, you know, the theater scene and is into dialogue and working with actors. And Lucas has no time for actors. And don't get method with me. And, you know, read the, word, read the words I have on the page, damn it. I don't care if you don't like it. Um, and we'll fix it in editing. And, you know, and, but both of them, you know, it, it's a perfect storm at the time they meet because, you know, independent film is starting to sort of, it's on the rise and easy riders coming along. And the two of them go out on the road and they're making the rain people and they realize that they can carry everything they need on their backs and they don't need to be beholden to a studio anymore and they can own everything. And, you know, and so, you know, the vision is the same, but the execution is so much different. Coppola is the one who's like, I'm going to take all my money and put it into Zoetrope, and I don't care how much anything costs, and I'm going to buy this expensive warehouse, and I'm going to, you know, and, and Lucas is like, well, I, I envision this as almost like a little frat house, and, and Coppola wants to build an empire immediately with, like, a landing pad for a helicopter, and Lucas <laughs> just thinks he's nuts. So, you know, they're, they, they're usually, they usually have the same goals, but the execution is almost always different. Mm-hmm. And um, and and Coppola makes Lucas insane because again Coppola is the one who's taking all of his own money and pouring it into Zoetrope, and pouring it into his own projects, and is you know loud and boastful and all the things that Lucas isn't. Um, and Lucas is you know wagging his finger at Coppola, saying, "Why are you investing all your money? Why are you being so crazy?" Why? <laughs> and meanwhile, Lucas actually does the same thing as we've talked about. He does it on Star Wars. He does it on on Phantom Menace. He you know he does it on Empire Strikes Back. But he has the I don't want to say the luxury because he works very hard for it, but you know he ends up with Star Wars every time when he does this. Uh, so he, he so he's always got the success. And Coppola, you know, has one from the heart, which bombs terribly, and he loses everything in that one. So you know Coppola's up and down and up and down, and Lucas is just on this constant rocket. So that finally does put their relationship flips it because Lucas and Coppola were always, to use Lucas's terms, they were always the Jedi Master and the Padawan, with mm-hmm. with Coppola as the Jedi Master. But as their relationship evolves, you know, Lucas is clearly the one on, it becomes the emperor. I don't want to say emperor, he's not the bad guy. But, you know, Lucas is the one in control, and Lucas is the one with the money. And Coppola actually has to go on bended knee to him from time to time and say, can I get the money to finish? You know, I want to do something like Tucker. And, you know, goes, uh, actually says he's embarrassed about having to go to Lucas to ask for money on these things. And Lucas, you know, is very warm to Coppola, but then, of course, takes over the project entirely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then Coppola, I love, goes out and does this preemptive strike to say it's not the movie he would have made at the height of his powers. And Lucas comes back and says, when was the last time you made a decent movie, Fran? I mean, it's like these two brothers just going at each other constantly. So it's a really, like, charming and fun relationship. They clearly love and adore each other, even as they're down on the floor punching and pulling hair. Uh, and there's another relationship, too, that comes out in the book, which uh, is definitely different from all of the other relationships that George Lucas seems to have, and that's his relationship with Steven Spielberg. It seems like it's, I mean, and maybe it's because Spielberg was not part of the USC cohort. He was at, was it Long Beach State? Is that right? Yeah, he was at Long Beach State. And, uh, and, you know, and sort of came up through the universe, through, you know, not interning, but like came up through the Universal Studios chain of command. Um, So I I think that in those early days, especially when Lucas and Coppola are working on Zoetrope and this independent film, Spielberg's not asked to join them. And I think because, you know, he has a little bit too much of a stink of Hollywood about him at that point because he's come up through Universal, uh, been nurtured by the studios, nurtured by the man, you know. So and I think they I think they viewed him as too a little too close to Hollywood. But Lucas and Spielberg are closer in age to each other. They both speak, you know, Lucas and Coppola speak the same filmic language. But Lucas and Spielberg speak the same language, and they know all the same references. You know, they both come out of, you know, 
EC Comics and DC Comics and, you know, playing with model trains and toys and cartoons and comic books. You know, they've got a lot of the same background, not just the way they view film and art, but they've got the same background. They watch the same TV shows. You know, Spielberg's more of a video game than Lucas is, but Lucas gets that. So, you know, they're much they're closer in age, which which makes them, you know, this this very genuinely warm, uh, you know, less older brother, younger brother relationship he's got with Coppola. It's more of a, a of a equals relationship with the two of them you know they trust each other implicitly and explicitly um you know when lucas is doing the raiders of the lost ark and he's doing all the indiana jones movies he kind of knows he can hand the keys over to spielberg he's going to take great care of these projects you know i mean that was the pressure ron howard felt on willow was this was an original story that lucas had and he was handing the keys to ron howard and ron howard's like you know i'm going to try not to drive this into the ditch because i know this is one of lucas's pet projects so, you know, we have that relationship with Spielberg where you'd say, here's the great idea I have. We're going to have, you know, Lawrence Kasdan come in and write the script for it. And we're going to be working. And, you know, just know sort of in- intuitively that Spielberg gets it, isn't going to mess it up. And by the same token, Spielberg, you know, and there's a quote from, from you that you share in the book about the, the rebooting of the Indiana Jones franchise, doing an Indiana Jones 5. And the, the press conference, Spielberg says, of course, George Lucas is going to be involved. You can't make any Indiana Jones movie without George Lucas. And that being a, a potential swipe at Disney for doing the sequel movies without George Lucas. Right, for doing Force Awakens. Yeah, and, you know, and that was one of the things, too, that um, when everybody said late, when they said Lucas was involved with the story, and everyone went, oh, Lucas isn't involved with Indiana Jones 5. Spielberg never said he was going to write the story. Uh, you know, he said he envisioned him as executive producing or producing, which, as far as I can tell, is still what he's doing with Indiana Jones 5. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately that comes down to, you know, the major thing that that I think at least about Lucas, and certainly this definitely applies to the prequels, and I'd love to hear what your opinion is about it outside of the uh, biography, you know, (laughs) keeping things neutral situation. But I've always felt that Lucas had the right idea about the story, and that if you, you know, step away from the dialogue and you step away from, you know, some of the, the clunkier acting, if you will, that the prequel stories themselves actually stand up pretty well it's just the execution that falls flat in places i mean what do you think about that you know i remember watching the first star wars in my i think in my 20s and i was working in politics by that point and there's a line in there where tarkin says something about how they've uh you know dissolved the senate and they've returned control to the local governors and i remember hearing that line and going oh wow that's a throwaway line but that sounds really fascinating i would love to know the politics of the empire well, that's what you get into in the prequels, and it's really not all that interesting, in my opinion. <laughs> um, you know, it's I, I you know I, I got annoyed with somebody about that. I was saying I don't know arguing about you know trade taxes and things like that is too much like what I did for a living. So maybe that was why I didn't <laughs> do it that much. But but um, you know I, I I don't like, for example, there, there's things about the the prequels that really bug me. I I don't like the whole midichlorians thing. That bothers me to no end. I don't like Anakin building C-3PO. I was always of the view that 3PO and R2 had been kicking around the universe with each other for 200 years before we ever saw them. And having him built in the desert by a seven-year-old really galled me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was glad we didn't see a young Han Solo. It's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I don't like when they, in an origin story, when everything is together in the origin story that you will see later on. You know, you've got every character makes an appearance. Right. Um, you know, so so you know, I, I have I have issues with prequels, but that's, I, there's people that think the the prequels are terrific. Um, I always compare it to Saturday Night Live. Like you always think the best years of Saturday Night Live were the ones you watched between the ages of twenty and twenty five. Ah. 
And I think Star Wars, like the ones you like the best are the ones you see between the ages of like 10 and 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's people that think the prequels are awesome and God, you know, God help, God love them. I mean, that's, that's what they're there for. Um, I, you know, I, <laughs> I watched them all again while I was writing the book and um, I, I enjoyed Revenge of the Sith. I, Attack of the Clones, I cannot stand. I think it's way too talky. Um, but again, some people love it because of that. So, you know, every, the great thing about Star Wars, again, is it belongs to all of us now, whether Lucas wants it or not. And we can have these arguments about it. And, you know, so we already know he took his ball and went home. We don't have to worry about it anymore. We can all sit and bicker about, you know, how terrible something is or about how great something is and whether Jar Jar was really a Sith Lord and, you know, they had to scrap that plot. You know, that's the great thing about Star Wars. And that's actually um, the ownership of Star Wars. Strangely enough, in the very first podcast, and we're um, 888 podcasts as of today. uh, Fantastic. Yeah, the very first podcast, though, that was one of the things that I had initially said outright is that I don't think Lucas realizes that we own it now. I mean... (laughs) It does belong to us, and you know maybe he thinks he sold it away in 2012 to Disney, but yeah, to keep was, it away from all of us, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was gone a lot before, longer. Absolutely, before that. And you know, and again, that's a, you know, I I understand his the the frustration, but it's also a really amazing place to be. I yeah. mean, we should all we should all be the kind of people who've like created this big universe that everybody can play in now. Exactly. Exactly. All right, I have one more question for you to wrap this up, and it would be if you had to pick what you think are maybe two to three of the most pivotal moments or decisions in Lucas's career that really shaped everything that was to come for his life, what would you pick for those moments or decisions? Um, when the studio, when Universal cut four minutes, four arbitrary minutes out of American Graffiti, because they could. Mm-hmm. That right there is, I think, the big moment. They had done it to him earlier on THX as well, but you know, Universal, I think he trusted somewhat. The fact that they went back, took that film, edited four minutes out of it just because they could, I think that's the moment right there where you have Skywalker Ranch is born and Lucasfilm LTD Juggernaut is born. That's the moment where he is determined. He is never going to let a studio take a film from him again. To do to him, you know, to do to him what businessmen do, which is he says in 1980, the, the studio suits they they see their job as screwing everybody. He calls them sleazy used car salesmen. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's like that that experience right there left a terrible taste in his mouth, and that was the beginning of it all. I think right there, I mean, he never forgave Ned Tan and never let him forget it. Mm-hmm. So that right there is one of the pivotal moments because that's sort of the the real birth. And again, it, it, he he lost a film before with THX, but that I think is the moment when his his path is forged, when he is determined. Now Skywalker Ranch is going to happen. I mean, Zoetrope didn't work out. The Zoetrope dream faded. Now he's going to build it himself without without uh, Coppola. So that's one big one. I think another one is even more recently when he's out trying to get red tails. And this, again, comes, they both play into Lucas's views of Hollywood and the way artists should be viewed in, in cinema. So, you know, part of the impetus behind Skywalker Ranch is that the, the artist is the one that matters. You know, Lucas's quote about the studios is he says, to them, the deal is the movie, not the movie is the deal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that to him is what Lucasfilm and Skywalker Ranch is all about. The movie is the deal, not the deal is the movie. So he, what, in 1990, or, or actually post-1990, when he, after he gets Red Tails made, 
and he's he's had to put all of his own money into this. This is a project very close to his own heart. You know, he'd been talking since 1990 about doing an all African American movie with African American directors and writers and actors in it. Can't get it made. Um, finally, makes it with his own money. Uh, takes it around for distribution. Some of the studios don't even send people to see the movie. That I mean, that really hurts his feelings, and again, that really disgusts him. I mean, he goes on John Stewart and essentially calls calls out the studios as racist. You know, saying they they're not going to touch this film because it's got black actors in it. You know, because it's a black director. I mean, he's really galled and annoyed with Hollywood, and I think that's the moment more than you know the prequels tanked or you know or people didn't appreciate the prequels. I think that's the moment more than that when he decides you know I'm done with this. I'm, I'm done with Hollywood. I'm, I think that sort of is, is the moment he's going out the door to selling his company because he's got something like Red Tails, which, you know, he's poured his heart and soul into and, and you know, people just, just crap on it. I think that's the moment right there that's starting to push him now into thinking about selling his company. Got it. All right. I like those as, as choices for sure. Absolutely. One other one I would throw in is your detailing of his negotiations with Fox over The Empire Strikes Back and how he talks about how, and this is another, you know, sleazy film producers or sleazy movie studio executives, how they're getting, you know, 60% and more of the cut (laughs) from Star Wars and they're doing nothing. And he's just incensed by that and talking about how, you know, he's putting everything on the line and, you know, his heart and soul and blood and sweat and tears and all of that. And the studio is, you know, taking more than half of it for just doing nothing for all intents and purposes. Oh, yeah, and, and he really he really makes them eat it, too. Like, I mean, like, their take mm-hmm. of it goes down to, like, you know, 30, 28% or 31% or something. Like, he really kicks them when they're down mm-hmm. on that and, you know, really, really negotiates a deal that's just great for him and probably costs Alan Ladd his job. Uh, which is unfortunate because Alan Ladd, I mean, if there was anybody who really stuck his neck out, I think, in the studio side of things, I think Alan Ladd was really, as far as I know, was, you know, doing the best he could to make it happen. Yeah, Alan Ladd, you know, really got it, first of all, because, again, that's another guy that's, you know, spoke the same language Lucas did and understood references to Captain Blood, which not every studio exec understood. Um, you know, so I, I really think Ladd got it, understood it. And even after seeing the initial drafts of, you know, the Star Wars and the original adventures of the Star Killer stuff, I mean, Ladd didn't understand what he was reading, but he knew he had something in Lucas. Um, and, you know, and that's that to Lucas. I mean, loyalty to Lucas means more than almost anything. Lo- Lucas is loyal. Uh, I don't want to say to a fault, but I mean, incredibly loyal to his friends, you know, giving them points in his movies. And if you went to, you know, if anybody he went to college to, with at USC, they, they stay friends. They help each other. They bail each other out. I mean, it's, it's really one of his, you know, redeeming qualities that Lucas has as well. So do you feel like, I'm sorry, bonus question for you. If no, I'm no. <laughs> so with all of the work that you've done, and you know, would that this could be a living document, as it were, um, because, of course, he is still a living figure in our lives. Do you feel a weight of responsibility in the sense that, you know, you're the first person who's taken on something of, you know, this, you know, kind of level of scholarly pursuit and this will probably be the definitive work, certainly, um, that is produced in his lifetime. Do you feel any sort of responsibility, number one, to 
you know, pick up a second half of it after he has passed on? And, you know, two, possibly, do you feel, considering, you know, the weight of what you've done, that you carry some responsibility for, you know, even shaping the way that he is viewed <laughs> by future generations? Um, oh boy, both great and both um, really scary questions. Alan. Um, uh, on the first one, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, who knows how long Lucas can live? I mean, he could live to be 100, probably know. But I would love to go back uh, and look at however many years, you know, have passed since the book came out and, and he passes. So, you know, I would love to go back and, and continue the story um, as needed. From there, I mean, I would love to even, you know, keep, I would, I, I would, I, bleh, I would love to still know, you know, how this whole museum thing plays out. You know, I've been following that almost since the moment I, uh, I first had the idea for the book. He was still, he was already fighting with the Presidio. So that's been going on as long as I've been working. So that, so yes, I would love to go back and, you know, update it in later versions, if, if given the opportunity. Second, um, you know, one of the things that I did want to do with this is, you know, I, I really, we tend to think of him uh, in silos. Like, we tend to think of, you know, here's Star Wars, and he was working on Star Wars, and then Star Wars came out. And then Empire Strikes Back, that one came out. And then Raiders of the Lost Ark, that one came out. Like, we tend to see his life as these this series of silos all neatly lined up next to each other. When really, once you start looking at everything, it's all jumbled around, and he's got different projects in the, in the, in the hopper at different times, and everything's crossing over, and no, there's nothing very neat or tidy about his creative process on these films because he's got so many balls in the air at so many different times. So one of the things that I, you know, that I, that I hope to do and that I think is worthy of, you know, people taking away from his life is, you know, all these things that Lucas has actually done. I mean, I, th I think it's worth appreciating, um, you know, so many of the things we take for granted about film, especially nowadays, you know, digital filmmaking and the way they sound in the theater and how we can have THX home systems at home. And we all, you know, like in the Simpsons, we all cheer for the THX logo as our teeth explode. And, <laughs> um, you, you know, and digital filmmaking and Pixar animation and being able to manipulate stuff on our computer at home now. Um, and the way movies are merchandise and the way we all, you know, buy the, the soundtracks to movies now. I mean, he came up with so many of those because he was trying to control and protect his own artistic integrity. You know, whether you think that what he put out was art or not is, you know, certainly up for your own opinion on this. But the, his goals were always his own artistic integrity and protecting that. So I, I think it's worth appreciating and respecting that in the context even of all these, you know, iconic movies he's done, these iconic characters he's created, the entire time he's doing that, he's also really advancing the ball. He's really advancing filmmaking. He's advancing the way we think about film, the way films are marketed, the way they're merchandised, the way people now hold on to sequel rights. And, you know, nobody just makes one Avengers movie. They make seven. So, you know, Lucas has, you know, really changed the way we look at film, the way we approach film, the way we wrap our arms around film way we wrap our arms around directors, the way we follow directors. You know, I mean, before Lucas came along, you weren't excited. You weren't necessarily excited like, oh, there's a movie by a certain director coming out. Nowadays, you look for a Quentin Tarantino film, a Kevin Smith film, a Tim Burton film. You know, we look for directors now. Directors have become, you know, rock stars, which didn't happen until they, these guys all came along. So, so, you know, he doesn't need me to secure his legacy. He's done a pretty good job on it. But I think part of what I saw as my task was, you know, that's, 
let's get all of this stuff in one place for the first time and let people see it and let everybody really sort of, you know, grasp what the, what a huge accomplishment, what a huge amount of stuff this guy's done in his lifetime, again, in the name of his own artistic freedom and integrity. And I have to say, considering just how immense his vision is, this had to have been an incredibly intimidating project. And, and you even said as much at the beginning of it and that you even despaired of being able to complete it at some point. And yet you've done an absolutely remarkable job digesting all of the information that's out there about him into a comparatively small, I mean, really, 500 pages? Like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> You've done well, a tremendous I'm job glad, with it. I'm glad to hear you say and I really, really appreciate that, Alan, because, you know, I know people will be like, well, I've heard that story before. I've seen that quote, but, you know, again, part of what I wanted to accomplish with this was, yeah, you might have heard that before, but let's put them all in context with each other now. You know, let's get, let's get the entire thing down so you can see you know, exactly what he was talking about there and why he was angry there and what, you know, what he was thinking about when he, when that story happened. Um, that was one of the real, um, challenges and ultimately one, I think one of the big goals with this book. So the book is available now, was released on Tuesday, December 6th, and is available at fine bookstores and online outlets as well. We will have a link for you to pick it up at the blog post for the show's episode at SW7X7.com. And Brian, for people who want to keep up with what's next on your journey, where should they go? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Brian J. Jones. Spell out my entire name. Uh, B-R-I-A-N-J-A-Y-J-O-N-E-S. If you just type Brian Jones, you get the dead Rolling Stone. Mm. Um, I'm also, I have a, my website is brianjjones.com, and I am on Facebook at official Brian J. Jones. So I'm kind of everywhere, but uh, I'm mostly on Twitter. If you want to come to play, come, come to Twitter. That's where I tend to have the most fun, so. And for our listeners, uh, I will also link to those in the show notes for the blog post for the show's episode as well, so you can get right. there too in case you don't happen to remember it off the top of your head while you're on your commute or you're on the treadmill or wherever you might be listening to this. <laughs> That'd be great. Right, and shoot me an email because I'll email you back. Yes, he will. In fact, I tested that earlier today, and he did. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell we'll tell all your listeners about us, us on our crossed wires at, at an earlier time when we were both going. Hmm, where's the other guy? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Brian at BrianJJones.com, and Brian is with an I, not a Y. For Correct. Exactly. So, Brian, thank you again so much for being so generous with your time and your insights and sharing all these wonderful stories about George Lucas and about your scholarly work in digging into his life and conveying the scope and breadth of his vision and all of the incredible dirty details underneath it. Not dirty in a bad way, just, you know, <laughs> the messy bits of life and business and love and and all of those remarkable things that help to create one of the most amazing forces of personality and pop culture and technology that I think any of us will ever encounter. Well, I really appreciate that. And Alan, one of the great thrills of having written the Jim Henson biography was I got to know all the Muppet fans. And one of the great things about having written a George Lucas biography is I now get to know all the Star Wars and George Lucas and Indiana Jones fans. So uh, keep the cards and letters coming. I, it's, I, it's such a privilege to be able to talk with everybody. Thank you very much. And for everybody listening, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast and this special conversation with Brian J. Jones. 
All right, that's going to do it for my conversation with Brian J. Jones, the author of George Lucas, A Life. And as promised, I've got the links to all of his social properties and website at the blog post for this show's episode at sw7x7.com, as well as a link for you to pick up the book on Amazon. I do have one to give away, however, and I'm going to tell you all the details about that after a bit of sponsor business we're going to take care of right now. Stay tuned. Hey, Rebel Rouser. You're listening to this podcast. Maybe you'd like to listen to a Star Wars story, too. Luckily, we've got just the thing for you. We've partnered with Audible to give you a free download and a free 30-day trial of their awesome service. All you got to do is go to audibletrial.com slash SW7X7 to sign up and get your free download. They've got dozens of Star Wars titles. Anything you want to do to explore that galaxy far, far away. One more time for you. audibletrial.com slash SW7X7. Welcome back. So one more time, here's the deal with the Facebook giveaway of George Lucas, A Life. So if you go to the Facebook page for the podcast, that's facebook.com slash SW7X7, or just start Star Wars 7X7 in Facebook, you will find pinned to the top of our page a post with a picture of me and the copy of George Lucas, A Life that I will be sending to you if your comment is the one that gets the most interactions. Your comment on that photo with something you liked or enjoyed about the conversation I had with Brian J. Jones. Make that comment quickly, though, and share it around because we're shutting this down on Tuesday the 13th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Good luck and thank you again for listening to my conversation with Brian J. Jones, author of George Lucas, A Life. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll pick it up with a Clone Wars briefing tomorrow and a Rebels briefing on Monday. Thanks for listening to another episode of Star Wars 7x7. And hey, before you fire at will, Commander, check out SW7x7.com for show notes, links, photos, videos, and more. And we'd be spectacularly grateful if you put a little something in the tip jar at Patreon.com SW7x7. It's not just fully armed and operational, it's Destiny Unleashed. This podcast is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited or their respective trademark and copyright holders. May the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2016 Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.